0: A note before we begin this episode contains depictions or mentions of drugs, murder, sexual assault, rape, and torture. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Today's case is more than a disappearance. The relevant events span almost a century, and the many crimes involved touch the highest levels of government in both Mexico and the United States. There are well over 100 victims, dozens missing, at least six murdered, 20 shot, many more brutalized and accused of crimes they swear they didn't commit. The evidence seems to be on their side, pointing to an elaborate cover up. But while we know a lot about what happened, we still don't know why. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm examining the Iguala mass kidnapping. In September 2016, 43 students disappeared off the streets of Mexico. It's an incredibly complicated case. Let's dive right in.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed.
0: My mom was amazing.
1: But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. New season out on Spotify soon.
0: It's September 26, 2014, around 8.30 p.m. Fernando Maureen is a first-year student at the Iotzi Napa Rural Teachers College. The school's located on the outskirts of a small rural city in Guerrero State along the southern coast of Mexico. But right now, Fernando's sitting on a bus on a highway just outside the city of Iguala, about a two-hour drive from school. He and his classmates, normalistas they're called, are stopped at a toll booth waiting for unsuspecting buses to arrive. The plan is to hijack as many as possible. They already took the bus they're sitting on earlier this month, but they need more if they're going to be able to transport a few hundred normalistas to Mexico City in a few days for a protest that happens every year. They'll return the buses when they're done, but looking around, it's starting to feel like they may not get any today it no longer feels safe or smart to move forward with their plan. It's clear they're being tracked. As Fernando steps off the bus onto the pavement, three federal police trucks arrive, along with state police officers. A man dressed in civilian clothes rides circles around the students on a red motorcycle. Another unmarked vehicle patrols the area as well. Fernando speaks with a classmate and together they decide it's not worth the risk. They'll have to return to Ayotzinapa empty-handed. But then a phone call changes their mind. They learn that some of their other classmates succeeded in commandeering a bus at a station in Iguala. Those classmates are now stuck. Bus terminal employees are blocking them from leaving. So Fernando and the others decide to risk it and drive to Iguala to rescue their friends. At 9.16 p.m., they arrive at the bus station. Most have tied t-shirts or bandanas around their faces to mask their identities. With sticks and stones as weapons, the normalistas free their classmates and help them take control of three additional buses. Some of the drivers, rather than be kicked off, tell the students they'll drive them wherever they want to go. They'd rather that than have them potentially ruin the vehicles. Before exiting the station, the 100 or so normalistas split themselves between the now five buses. It's a hasty process. Nobody tracks who goes where. They're trying to get out as quickly as possible to avoid a run-in with police. The caravan leaves the bus station, but while two buses take the most direct route back to school, the other three accidentally get off at the wrong exit. They end up stuck in gridlock traffic in downtown Iguala. It's a busy night. A little over an hour ago, the mayor's wife wrapped an event celebrating a social program she spearheaded for the city. Trying to find a way out of traffic, some of the normalistas exit the buses to clear a lane, but 10 minutes after leaving the station, law enforcement officers arrive and point guns in their direction. In response, the students volley stones at the officers. They push the police back far enough to allow the buses to continue on, but the calm doesn't last long. Around 9.30 p.m., one block away from the main square in Iguala, gunshots ring out. It's the Iguala police. According to witnesses, officers fire their guns into the air, but sensing they're under attack, the three buses come to a stop and the normalistas step out into the street. Scuffles break out between the students and the police. Soon, there are more gunshots, and a dark-colored suburban arrives, carrying five armed men in civilian clothes. They have buzzed, military-style haircuts. I assume they were soldiers, one witness said. These men are joined by six uniformed police officers in bulletproof vests, carrying anti-riot gear. In audio recordings of this moment, 14 gunshots can be heard. The shots are aimed at the normalistas. Law enforcement officials shout expletives at them as they tell the students to stop running. One of the normalistas takes off on foot, pursued by some of the military men. The suburban and the police truck carrying the other officers peel off and head in a different direction. Shortly after, witnesses see a dark blue car without a license plate pull up to the scene. A man who also looks like he's from the military gets out and starts collecting bullet shells from the road possibly to erase evidence of the shootout. Incredibly, at this point, only a few cars have been hit by stray bullets. No one has been injured. But this is just the first attack. Before the night's over, there will be another four. By 9.40 p.m., Iguala PD has set up a blockade. A police truck prevents the three buses from going any further down the road. Other squad cars block them from behind. Five students step out to try and push the police truck that's blocking their path. As they do, the second attack begins. Instead of arresting the boys, law enforcement officers open fire. The students duck for cover, but a bullet strikes one of the five, 19-year-old Aldo Gutierrez in the head. His friends shout at the police to stop, screaming for someone to call an ambulance. They're unarmed, they say, but the barrage doesn't end. Most of the artillery target the last of the three buses, the one carrying Fernando Marine. Bullets pop its tires and shatter its windows. Students hide under seats and in the aisles. From his vantage point, Fernando can see the insignia of the state police outside. At one point, Fernando leaps off the bus and hurls a fire extinguisher towards his attackers, but he's shot in the arm. He crawls back into the bus where his friends create a makeshift tourniquet The shooting continues for another 30 minutes. Remember, these students are unarmed. They threw a few rocks at police, injuring no one, and now they're being shot at for half an hour. As time goes on, more men and high caliber weapons join the ranks of law enforcement, including a police car with a machine gun turret attached to its roof. Eventually, one of the normalistas convinces their bus driver to negotiate with the police on their behalf. They want to surrender. The driver agrees to go through with it, but when he identifies himself to police, they tell him, we don't care who you are. You're one of them. The gunfire doesn't fully slow down until around 10.30 PM, almost an hour after the shooting started. As men arrive to, once again, clean the bullet shells off the ground, a student calls out, why are you hunting us? Law enforcement doesn't answer. Instead, they pull the students off the three buses and line them up on the sidewalk, hands behind their heads. One of the student leaders tries to resist, but is bashed in the head with a rifle until he submits. Around this same time, Fernando feels the barrel of a gun placed against his temple. The officer holding it tells Fernando he plans to kill him, but he doesn't. An ambulance arrives and takes Fernando to a local hospital. As the doors to the ambulance close, he sees his friends sprawled out on the ground, lying at the feet of local, state, and now federal officials. Many are weeping. That image burns itself into Fernando's mind. It's the last time he'll see any of them again. Meanwhile, a short distance away, the third attack is underway. The two other buses, the ones that didn't take the wrong exit, have now been stopped by federal police on the highway in front of the state courthouse. According to witnesses, members of the Mexican army are present. Having spoken to the others by phone, these normalistas know about the other attacks. They're under the impression that one of their classmates has been killed. So they're angry and scared. As one bus approaches a group of officials, the students are told to exit. They follow instructions as officers hurl insults at them, saying that the students are going to, quote, die like dogs. Terrified, the normalistas throw stones and scatter. A few run for the hills and fields surrounding Iguala. Officials surround the other bus before the students on board can exit. They bash the sides of the vehicle spray tear gas inside, and slash its tires. Some of the normalistas manage to escape and break away. They run to the courthouse and beg the security guards to let them inside. They're trying to kill us, they're kidnapping us, they say, but the guards don't let them in. They're not sure what to do. The students that don't escape are beaten, dragged, and rounded up. Most will never be seen again. The fourth attack happens about an hour later. Around 11:45 p.m., a bus carrying a soccer team is driving home. After winning a game earlier that evening, they've already been stopped at a checkpoint set up by federal officers. They also passed one of the buses from the third attack, now abandoned, its windows shattered. But about 6 miles up the road, their bus comes under fire. It's a case of mistaken identity. The bus looks like one of the ones carrying the normalistas. As officials unload their ammunition, shooting at the bus, the players take cover. The trainer yells out, don't shoot, we're a soccer team. But it's too late. A bullet hits their bus driver in the head and the vehicle spins out of control, turning over in a ditch. Officials shout for the players to evacuate the bus, but they're trapped. The bus is now on its side, with the door stuck in the dirt. As more bullets rain down, the soccer team's coach is hit in the eye and the stomach. Eventually, the attack stops. The team's physician, Felix Perez, helps players off the bus, pushing them through the windows. He tells them to hide in a nearby cornfield. Many of them have been shot. He manages to get the coach and the bus driver out as well. But when he re-enters the bus for a last sweep, he finds a kid wounded near the back, 15-year-old David Jose Garcia. The doctor tries his best to stop the bleeding, but it's no use. He watches David die. At the scene of this fourth attack, federal police don't call ambulances until after they intimidate the victims and secure the area. Agents from the state prosecutor's office arrive later, then soldiers from the army. Sometime after midnight, a group of normalistas who were back at the school arrive by car in Iguala as reinforcements. They want to help, but by now, most of their friends are scattered to the wind. The ones they do find fill them in on the horrors they experienced. Probably through social media, the students are able to arrange a press conference at an intersection in downtown Iguala. Journalists arrive to hear them speak. The normalistas don't understand why their government seems so intent on killing them. But as they loudly and vehemently denounce the attacks, The fifth and final one begins. Unmarked cars pull up to the street corner where the press conference is being held. Men in dark clothes step out. First, they fire into the air, then into the crowd. The group scatters and runs, but the men pursue, hunting them through the streets. According to witnesses, they appear to be trained marksmen. Two more normalistas are killed. 18-year-old Daniel Solis, and 23-year-old Julio Cesar Ramirez. The students that get away bang on doors of houses and businesses, begging to be let in. Please help, they're killing us, they plead. Many hear their cries, but only eight households let any of them in. The rest are too afraid. By the time the sun rises on September 27th, 2014, six people are dead from the attacks in Iguala. Half of those were innocent bystanders, the 15-year-old soccer player, the bus driver for the soccer team, and a 40-year-old woman named Blanca Montiel who got caught in the crossfire during the fourth attack. The other three are normalistas, the two I mentioned who were hunted, Danielle Solis and Julio Cesar Ramirez and one more. Around 9 a.m., army officers find 20-year-old Julio Cesar Mondragon's body in front of the state courthouse. He's lying on his back with his pants pulled down. His body shows signs of torture. His face is partially skinned. His chest is bruised. There are lacerations on his neck and face, and one of his eyes now lies in the dirt about a foot away from his body. It's nothing short of horrific, 24 other individuals suffer gunshot wounds, amputated fingers, shattered forearms, jaws nearly taken off. Aldo Gutierrez, the student shot in the head during the second attack, lives long enough to be placed into a coma. And then, of course, there's the 43 normalistas who disappeared that night. To this day, the world still doesn't know what really happened to them. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. Next on our series, a four-part deep dive into the religious movement known as the Moonies. Sushi, mass weddings, political coups. Discover the many business ventures, beliefs, and scandals of this headline-making sect. This is one special you do not want to miss. You can also catch up on hundreds of classic episodes and new ones each week by following Cults free on Spotify. Find out what turns a natural-born leader into a vessel for wreaking havoc. Enjoy a new episode of Cults every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify.
1: This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop?
0: On the morning of September 27, 2014, the governor of the Mexican state of Guerrero condemns the events in Iguala. He announces that officials have already started their investigation and he plans to hold the perpetrators accountable to the fullest extent of the law. Later that day, the state's prosecutor general, Inaki Blanco Cabrera, updates the public. He blames the attacks almost exclusively on local police forces, saying they, quote, engaged in an excessive use of force. He mentions that the bullets and shells at the crime scenes match guns owned and operated by Iguala's municipal force. As a form of reassurance, he says that the army and state police are now in control of the city's security. He adds, helicopters and canvassing teams are out looking for the missing students. Before night falls, federal agencies arrest 22 Iguala police officers for their alleged involvement in the events. By all accounts, the officers cooperate with investigators and hand over their weapons. Two days later, Blanco Cabrera provides another update. He claims his staff searched the 27th Infantry's base, as well as the Iguala police's headquarters and didn't find any of the missing students. Before long, the cumulative confessions of those arrested are used to corroborate the government's official version of what happened that night, what has since become known as the historical truth. Here's what they claim. According to the attorney general's office, the attack in Iguala happened as a part of a plot spearheaded by the city's mayor, Jose Luis Abarca. Abarca allegedly wanted to prevent the normalistas from interrupting his wife's presentation that night, the one celebrating her accomplishments. He worked in tandem with the local Iguala police chief, Felipe Flores, and the criminal organization Guerreros Unidos to prevent that from happening. The 43 students who were now missing were taken to the Iguala police department, then shepherded to an unknown location outside the city. There, they were killed and burned in a massive bonfire before their remains were dumped into the San Juan River. As a part of their version of events, the attorney general's office also maintains that state and federal officials had no knowledge of what was happening in Iguala that night, not until hours after the first attack. Now, before I discuss the many problems with this historical truth and the incredibly troubling means through which it was constructed, let's rewind a little. I wanna talk about who the normalistas are, what they believe, and why they may have become targets of such a violent attack in the first place. The Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College, also known as the Raul Isidro Borgos Normal School, is one of the many normal schools in Mexico. They were started as a part of a national government program back in 1926, They offer training to young men, primarily from impoverished indigenous communities to become teachers, so they can make a living educating their communities. In addition to degrees in primary and physical education, they offer classes in sports, dance, music, and agriculture. But what makes the school unique is that it operates under the principles of socialism. It's entirely free and entirely student-governed. The normalistas are in charge of the grounds the school sits on responsible for planting, growing, and harvesting all their own food. And its curriculum places a heavy emphasis on politics. Around campus, you can find murals of Lenin, Emiliano Zapata, and other socialist or guerrilla figures. The words, if I lead, follow me. If I hesitate, push me. If I am killed, avenge me. If I am a traitor, kill me. Attributed to Che Guevara are written on its walls. Since its founding, many of the school's attendees have been part of revolutionary groups, who, because of their activism, have been hunted by or had violent clashes with the government in the past. Perhaps most famously, the Party of the Poor and its paramilitary arm, the Peasant Justice Brigade. These two groups were active during Mexico's Dirty War. Both sides were guilty of the high-profile kidnappings that gave the Dirty War its name. But ultimately, the fight wasn't fair one side had a militia. As grassroots movements spread around the country, the Mexican army perpetrated a number of massacres. More than 1,200 Mexicans went missing, forcibly taken by the federal agents, all because the state viewed them as threats. Others were assassinated. The dirty war took place throughout the 60s and 70s, with some asserting it continued on until the turn of the 21st century all to say the normalistas in law enforcement have never been on good terms. But to better understand what happened that night in 2014, I want to fast forward to after the dirty war ends, two years before the attacks. It's December, 2012. 300 normalistas gather on the Mexico-Acapulco highway, blocking traffic for an annual protest. They're demanding more funding from the government to improve their schools. Funding they desperately need. According to a report from the National Commission on Human Rights, the state of Guerrero sends 61 federal, 73 state, and 34 ministerial police officers to the highway. They're armed to the nines. After launching tear gas grenades into the crowd and a fire breaks out, the officials begin shooting, and they aim to kill. They shoot 21-year-old Gabriel Echeverria in the neck and 22-year-old Jorge Alexis Herrera in the head. And the deaths don't seem accidental. Gabriel was the head of the Normalistas' most important political group on campus. Those injured don't receive care. Civilians have to step in and help. Many students are arrested, detained, and taken to federal police headquarters. There, they're reportedly manhandled and beaten. One student is physically tortured until he pulls the trigger on a rifle. It's an attempt to pin him for the murder of his two fellow classmates. As of August, 2022, no government official or member of law enforcement has suffered any consequence for the attack. One year later, while a group of normalistas are on their way to a march honoring the lives of Gabrielle and Jorge Alexis, Six armed men in masks hijack their bus. The men tell the students that should they continue protesting, they'll burn them alive. Later, they beat the bus driver until he loses control of the vehicle and the bus crashes along the highway. Five are injured, one critically. One month later in December 2012, Enrique Peña Nieto takes over as the president of Mexico. According to reports, Nieto is briefed on Mexico's most pressing national security issues. The Normalistas made the list. Their activism was classified as a threat to quote, governability. Even more strange, some of the biggest drug cartels in the country, like Los Zetas and Sinaloa cartel, are noticeably absent from the list. So are their leaders, like Joaquin Guzman Loera, AKA El Chapo, who at the time was widely considered the most powerful trafficker in the world. I'll say that again, the Mexican government considered the socialist ideals of a bunch of impoverished indigenous teachers to be more of a threat than the most bloodthirsty criminal organizations in the world. Now, as I said earlier, on the day of the Iguala Massacre, the Normalistas were trying to illegally commandeer buses that they didn't own. They had no plans to pay for them, and they used force, sticks, stones, verbal threats. But it's important to note that by 2014, the Normalistas taking buses for an annual pilgrimage to the capital was basically a tradition. It happened every year for several years. The Normalistas felt the commandeering was justified In their eyes, the government didn't provide them with the necessary funds for transportation. So they had to temporarily steal. As for the bus companies, they expected it. Most companies instructed their drivers to stay on board and make sure the bus didn't get destroyed. And the normalistas apparently took pretty good care of the drivers. They'd give them food and whatever else they could provide for the duration of the trip. It was a massive inconvenience for whichever bus company got held up but these actions did not merit a full-blown shootout. It's worth restating why the Normalistas were commandeering the buses, because there's a dark irony to it. They were going to an annual protest commemorating the 1968 Tlatelolco massacre, a state-sanctioned slaughter where Mexican military officials gunned down thousands of student protesters in Mexico City. Tanks rolled into the crowd, Snipers were likely present. According to the government, only four people died that day in 1968, 20 were injured. But witnesses claim to have seen hundreds of bodies being carted away. The actual death toll is still unknown, but students were beaten and arrested in unprecedented numbers. Many went missing. As you can imagine, the government probably didn't like the idea of the normalistas attending the protest, but there's one more major event that informs what happened that night in Iguala, one that had nothing to do with the normalistas and took place just three months before the attacks. It's June 20th, 2014, around 5.30 a.m. in San Pedro Limón, a small village in the state of Mexico, 22 people are shot and killed, including one adolescent girl. According to them, the people who died were members of the criminal organization Guerreros Unidos. They were accidentally killed during a sting operation while infiltrating a drug laboratory run by the cartel. When the military arrived, gunshots broke out, the soldiers acted in self-defense and ultimately did their country a great service. Government officials also claim that the military freed three women who were being held hostage by Guerreros Unidos. But for some reason, after freeing these women, the army detains them without explaining why. Two weeks later, the Associated Press calls into question this version of events. Apparently, only six bullet holes were found on the outside of the warehouse where the impromptu shooting took place. Inside the warehouse, though, markings indicated execution-style killings. After the AP's report, the Mexican government denies the claims outright, but they refuse to release the autopsies of any of the 22 victims, stating the results are a quote, state secret. Then on September 17, 2014, nine days before the events in Iguala, the AP publishes another article. This one's titled, Witness Reveals Executions in the State of Mexico. One of the women who had allegedly been kidnapped escaped their detainment and shared their perspective on what happened with a reporter. She claims the men in the warehouse gave themselves up willingly and asked for mercy, but the soldiers beat them, lined them up in a row and killed them, saying these dogs don't deserve to live. She describes the terrible crying she heard from inside the warehouse and how the army shot the adolescent girl twice in the chest and once in the leg. After they were done, the soldiers apparently put on gloves and rearranged the bodies to stage a shootout. The woman's story is confirmed by officials at the UN, Amnesty International, and the National Human Rights Center. The director of the Human Rights Watch calls the event one of the worst massacres in Mexico. To put an end to their PR crisis, the Mexican government hastily charges eight soldiers for masterminding the slaughter. In fact, on the morning of September 26, 2014, just hours before the Normalistas come under attack, Secretary of the Interior, Miguel Angel Osorio Chong speaks to Congress, saying if anything did happen with regards to the conduct of officers of the army, it would be the exception as we have a great army. He maintains that the soldiers acted of their own accord and the government had no idea of what actually transpired not until after the AP's report. He ignores the occasions in which the government denied the report, and he never explains why the autopsies are classified as a state secret. Two days later, Asorio Chong would have to make another statement, this time about the massacre in Iguala, echoing the assertions of his peers. He says, it's hard to believe the actions taken by some police officers working under the orders of the local mayor. He maintains that the local police acted of their own accord, and the federal government had no knowledge of the attacks until hours after they began. He ignores the overwhelming amount of contradicting evidence, and of course, he never mentions that the three government officials put in charge of the investigation had a long history of corruption and cover ups. Crimes that included planting evidence at crime scenes, forging birth certificates, knowingly bringing false charges against public servants and threatening, bribing, and torturing witnesses to elicit false confessions. After the events in Iguala on September 26th and 27th, 2014, protests erupt all over the country. Mexicans are outraged by the attacks on the normalistas. In particular, they're horrified by pictures of the apparent torture and brutal murder of Julio Cesar Mondragon, the 20-year-old whose body military officials found outside the state courthouse. After everything that's happened in their country, many don't trust the government's version of events. They wanna know what really happened, no one more so than the parents of the 43 missing students. On October 29th, a month after the attacks, the parents of the missing are finally able to meet with President Peña Nieto. they have been trying for weeks. Once in the room, they contradict the government's so-called historical truth and all but accuse the military of abducting their children. One parent tells the president, quote, "'No matter what it takes, we demand justice. "'If someone had knowledge of the events and didn't act, "'they are guilty.' And if you didn't act, you are just as guilty. We will give you no more than two, three days to provide concrete answers." Together with their lawyer, the parents provide a list of 10 demands. The most non-negotiable being that the government allow the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights to assist with the ongoing investigations, providing external and independent oversight. In the meeting, the president agrees to every demand, He expresses his clear commitment and tells the parents, quote, there's not an inch of room for impunity. But after the meeting ends, there's no follow-through. The government doesn't hold up their end of the bargain. They do, however, update their story. Nine days later, at a press conference filled with international journalists, the attorney general of Mexico says they've now arrested three key players, Patricio Reyes-Landa, Jonathan Osorio-Cortez, and Agustin Garcia Reyes. The three alleged members of Guerreros Unidos confessed to receiving and executing the missing 43 students. And through their confessions, investigators have now found remains they believe to belong to the missing normalistas. At the press conference, the attorney general shows select video clips of the interrogation and confessions, which reinforce what the government's been saying all along. That night, after the attacks, local police officers took the 43 normalistas down to the Iguala police station. From there, the officers handed the students over to members of Guerreros Unidos, who transported the students to an area called Loma de Coyote on the outskirts of Kokula, the next town over. That's where the three men executed the normalistas and burned their remains. The bonfire apparently raged from midnight to 2 p.m. on the 27th. Before the press conference is over, the attorney general adds that the deterioration caused by the fire likely means it'll be impossible to identify any of the remains, but of course, they'll try. What they won't do, however, is discuss or release the men's confessions in their entirety. Probably because if anyone were to look at the statements side by side, they learn that the three confessions don't agree on even the most basic facts. For example, the timeline. The three men don't agree on when the Guerreros Unidos met up that night. One says 8.30, another says 9.30, the third says 3 a.m., Two claim that some of the normalistas arrived at the burn site already dead, but don't agree on the number. The other says they were all still alive. Only one confession mentions local police officers at the site. The list goes on and on. The testimonies don't even agree on how they killed the normalistas. Two describe different methods of shooting. The third claims they forced the students to walk into the fire alive, And perhaps most baffling of all, one timeline places the Guerreros Unidos at the burn site with a truck full of normalistas before the attacks in Iguala even began. It doesn't make any sense until you learn that before the attorney general held that press conference, one of the three alleged executioners, Patricio, came forward and said his confession contained false information and that it was given under severe duress. Jonathan and Augustine would soon claim the same. Between them, the three men described being blindfolded, beaten, electrocuted, waterboarded, sexually assaulted, and suffocated with plastic bags until they were unconscious. Torture sessions apparently lasted for hours and in some cases, days. Medical reports support these claims, detailing wounds and contusions on their bodies that weren't present before their arrests. In addition to physical torture, the men claim their interrogators threatened to kill their families, rape their wives, kidnap their children if they didn't say what they wanted to hear. While blindfolded, Jonathan reportedly overheard a voice say, "'With these idiots, "'we're going to put the lid on this case.' it seems that officials didn't care about the truth. They only cared about closing the case by any means necessary, forcing the evidence to fit their narrative. It's since come out that many people detained or arrested in connection with this case had their basic human rights violated by investigators. A probe by the United Nations examined the treatment of 63 alleged suspects and found possible evidence of torture in 51 of them and strong evidence in 34. Many reportedly signed their names to confessions they didn't write. Others had their testimony altered after they signed. This was happening inside federal office buildings, meaning there's no reasonable explanation for how those in charge didn't know. All of this feels even more premeditated when you consider a common theme among those arrested, poverty. Families of the accused claim they couldn't afford to pay lawyers, which made it easier for officials to disregard alibis and character statements provided by family and friends. Officials apparently told one detainee, we don't care about your proof. They pinned the entire affair on local officers who weren't on duty that night. Some were even on vacation. It's hard to wrap your head around, I know. But now that we have an idea of how officials constructed their historical truth, let's examine evidence that refutes it. There's too much for me to cover everything line by line. So I'll just focus on two claims. Starting with the idea that state and federal officials had no idea the attacks were happening until they were basically over. Remember, the first attack started around 9.30 PM. The last one took place after midnight That's almost three hours where the state or federal government could have intervened and didn't. Now let's set aside the eyewitness accounts that place state and federal officials at the scene of the attacks. In some cases, tampering with evidence. In others, leaving victims bleeding out on the ground. In still others, being the aggressors. Let's just talk about how unrealistic this claim is on its face. The state police, The federal police and the attorney general's office all had headquarters nearby. The Secretariat of National Defense had a military base. All operate 24 7, 365 days a year. C4 stations, part of Mexico's emergency response protocol, were fully active that night. They're operated by the National Security Council, run by the state, and funded by the federal government. Emergency call and response teams, similar to 911 in the States, utilize security cameras and provide information in real time. And even if by chance, there was a massive system failure that night, at 11 p.m., doctors had called Guerrero State's prosecutor's office and directly asked officials to start investigating the attacks. Authorities didn't arrive at the hospital until after 2.40 a.m., Even scarier, official records suggest federal agents were tracking the Normalistas days before the attacks. The second claim I want to discuss is the fire, the one that allegedly took place on the outskirts of town and cremated the Normalistas. Now, logically, if a bonfire big enough to cremate 43 people raged for 14 hours, from midnight to 2 p.m. on the 27th, Surely, helicopters searching for the normalistas would have seen it, but even more damning. Three separate studies have determined there's no real evidence that a fire ever happened, which begs the question, how did federal officials find human remains at the site? Many now believe the remains were planted. Declassified drone footage appears to show military officers tampering with evidence at the burn site before the students' remains were supposedly found. If true, if federal officials planted the evidence, that would mean they had access to the body of at least one of the missing normalistas. When DNA tests came back in 2014, investigators claimed they could only identify a single student, 19-year-old Alexander Mora Venancio. The other remains they said were too damaged. Where did Alexander's remains come from? We don't know but it's worth mentioning that in the aftermath of the attack, the Mexican army refused to give investigators access to their base. One question still remains, why? Why did any of this happen? Why would Mexican officials hunt down a bunch of unarmed student teachers in training? The Normalistas weren't trying to interrupt an event that night. The event held by the mayor's wife was over well before the Normalistas arrived in downtown Iguala. When the attack started, the mayor and his wife were eating dinner a safe distance away. Instead, it's been suggested that the Normalistas unknowingly hijacked a bus, or buses, containing a couple million dollars worth of heroin that belonged to a drug cartel. That may be why so much artillery was focused on the bus Fernando Marine was on, but only the upper half. If true, the implications are harrowing. It would mean that every level of law enforcement and the Mexican government, all the way up to the president, worked in tandem with cartels to eliminate the normalistas and seize the drugs. It paints a dark possibility that Mexico's politicians and military can be bought by the same criminal organizations they say they're working against that they may have more of a vested interest in eliminating those who question their authority than they have in eliminating crime. And to cover their actions, they're willing to target their country's most vulnerable communities, indigenous Mexicans and those living in poverty. It's even more troubling considering that Mexico is the most dangerous country in the world to be a journalist the journalist who first revealed the lies behind the historical truth, Annabelle Hernandez has had to flee Mexico. I relied heavily on her exhaustive research and book, A Massacre in Mexico, to create this episode. She's received multiple death threats, been sent headless animals, and on one occasion, had masked men raid her home looking for her. Luckily, she wasn't there at the time. She doesn't know if she'll ever be able to return to her country. As of this recording, eight journalists or media assistants have been killed in Mexico in 2022 alone. I wanted to tell this story because it's a glimpse into a type of disappearance I rarely cover, where the word disappeared takes on a whole new meaning. In Mexico, it's used as a verb, as in the 43 normalistas were disappeared. In this sense, it's almost exclusively used to refer to individuals believed to have been taken by a cartel or the government. As many as 20,000 people have been disappeared in just the past two years. In a way, what happened in Iguala is only unique in that it's one instance where overwhelming evidence proves there's rampant corruption in the government. Something citizens like the normalistas have been saying for decades. And if you're an American, your government may be complicit as well. Mexico buys arms from the United States, so the US indirectly profits from violence. Plus, American addiction fuels Mexico's cartels and US foreign policy has a history of funding Mexico's military. The intent is for money to help them crack down on drug cartels, thereby curbing the amount of drugs coming into the States. But if the military is working with cartels, as evidence suggests, and then suppressing and murdering civilians to cover it up, it doesn't matter the intent. As for the missing 43 normalistas, since 2014, authorities have found dozens of unmarked graves and 184 bodies, but they've only identified the remains of two more students. 19 year old Christian Alfonso Rodriguez in 2020, and 20 year old Josevani Guerrero in 2021. Both were found half a mile from the burn site in Cocula, not in the river where investigators first claimed they were dumped. Some of those arrested and charged have been released, a few only to be arrested again. Text messages from alleged members of Guerrero's Unidos seem to confirm the theory that the government worked with cartels to kill the normalistas but no high-ranking Mexican official has been held accountable. The original head of the investigation, a man named Tomas Cerrone, is wanted by authorities. However, he's fled Mexico and is believed to be hiding in Israel. Life at the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College hasn't been the same since 2014, and most families of the missing are still waiting for answers to where their children are. Protests have been ongoing since 2014, Thousands of Mexicans are demanding justice. And I think it's high time that more of the world joins them. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 45 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Connor Sampson, edited by Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.